Our ushers are coming along with Bibles and note sheets, so raise your hand if you don't have your Bible with you today and you need one to look along with so that you can see where we're studying as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11 this morning. When the Lord called me to, uh, to ministry, uh, I know one of the biggest hang-ups for me was my fear of public speaking. And uh, I'm glad that the Lord didn't call me into ministry in this season now, because more than ever, in the world that we live in today, if you make a mistake or do something embarrassing, the odds that the whole world will see that is infinitely greater than it was when I was called to the ministry. Now everybody's walking around with this little high-definition recording device, and uh, you might find that Something you do that's embarrassing or uh, foolish will one day end up on a YouTube clip and you might become famous without even wanting to be. Um, If you are uh, wanting to see the impact of what cameras have done, then you and a friend, sometime when you're in public, fake like you're having a big argument and grab each other and start shaking each other and watch how many people turn around and pull their phones out right away just so they can videotape in case something uh, noteworthy happens. It seems like everybody nowadays uh, is eager to record the things that they see in life and to find that interesting something that they could share with everybody else. In, in fact, today when you tell a story, people say, if you don't have pictures or video, it's like it didn't even happen, right? Now, we're going to talk about the, uh, a very radical thing that did happen in history this morning. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the claim that Jesus rose again is, is certain to raise eyebrows. When you share with the people who did not grow up in Christian homes, the people who are not familiar with the gospel message, that you worship a man who lived, who died, and on the third day rose from the dead then that's going to make people stop and pause. It's going to make people wonder whether they want to listen to the rest of what you have to say about this Jesus. And for this reason, God has brought forth many eyewitnesses to tell us what they saw. You're not going to find any video of it on YouTube. But many eyewitnesses have been secured by way of God's divine providence to offer their personal testimony of what was thought by many to be impossible. Is a person saved by proof and evidence? I want to assure you that they are not. Salvation is not an intellectual exercise. So if you are sitting here today and you do not yet follow Jesus Christ, that won't change based on whether or not I present the perfect argument for you. It will change if the Lord grabs a hold of your heart and opens your eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the way to be near to God. So we have to be careful that we don't get in our minds that in order to save the world, all we have to do is come up with a better argument or a more winsome sermon. That's not how people are saved necessarily. God is the one who saves. God is the one who turns the wicked heart that has no interest in Christ to loving Christ and and repenting of their sin. But while we are not saved by mere proof, God is a God of truth, isn't He? And so it glorifies this God of truth to make plain plain the evidence of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And I'm going to start a little bit um, 
into the passage that Paul preached last week, starting in verse 3, and then we're going to study through verse 11 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's play, uh, pray for a moment and ask the Lord to give us divine eyes to see and ears to hear um, what He has to tell us in this scripture this morning. Almighty God, we come before you humbly knowing that we would be deaf to these things of truth if it were not for you giving us understanding. And so we do plead with you today that through the Spirit you would open us up to the things of eternal truth that lay before us on these pages. God, help us to think of other passages of Scripture which affirm the things that Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians. Help us to remember that by the analogy of faith, everything in your Word affirms everything else in the Word, that your message does not contradict itself, Lord, but that it is a comprehensive uh, picture, a display of your will to save wretched people like us from sin and to make them your own children. And so we pray this morning, Lord God, that we would be edified by the things that we are studying, that you would strengthen your church by these truths, and that we would be better equipped to share with the world the good news of salvation that Paul shared to the Corinthians and that the Corinthians then shared with others in their city and watched the church grow. We praise you, Father God, for your presence with us, and we ask that you would give us insight in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 3 through 4, Paul presents to us the substance of the gospel. He tells us that Christ died, that He was buried, and that He rose again. And of course, there is more to the gospel than that, but that is the core, basic element of what God did in order to save us. And the fact that God made this effort to save us, the fact that God is able and willing to do this, to make a people for Himself, is indeed good news. That is what the word gospel means. It is good news to sinners like us, to people who break the law of God, who do not always do what is right. But in addition to the substance of the gospel, Paul intends to present validation of that same gospel. And so chapter 15 provides two very important validations for the trustworthiness of this message, which culminates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, the Apostle Paul tells us that this gospel happened in accordance with the Scripture. Uh, Pastor Paul touched on this last week, 
the message of the gospel doesn't come out of nowhere, but rather it is a continuation. It is a fulfillment of the things that God had been pointing to throughout the whole of the Old Testament and even through the words of John the Baptist who proclaimed that the Messiah surely had come. By it, God has communicated who He is and what He is doing by the Scriptures. He has told us His plan to save. And now Christ comes and His life and ministry are the exact fulfillment of those established promises and prophecies. So some of the texts that we can look back to uh, are Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, we can look back to the passage of Scripture that I read this morning from Isaiah 53 that declares that Jesus will be a man of sorrow, but that He will indeed suffer in our place for our sins. We could also look to Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10, where it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Those words are probably really familiar to us because we sing a song in worship that is based upon this psalm. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. When you read that psalm, you're actually reading a foreshadowing of Christ and His declaration that He knows His Father will not let Him stay in the grave, but that on the third day He will indeed rise. Peter quotes this psalm in Acts chapter 2. When he is preaching right after Pentecost, he affirms that the psalmist was prophetically speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there are specific passages of Scripture that point directly to the resurrection. But when Paul says, according to the Scripture, he's also meaning in a more general sense that the concept of the resurrection is tied to the general theme of God's overarching plan for redemption. God intends to bring life from our spiritual deadness. He intends to bring us out of the bondage of slavery, of sin, and into a new life freed from those things. He, he intends, as Ezekiel, as Ezekiel tells us uh, from the vision that he was given, to take dead bones and to raise them up and to make them alive so that we might proclaim the greatness of the God that we worship. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future resurrection of His followers that is contingent upon His resurrection is no departure from the Word of God. In fact, it is a beautiful incarnation of those prophetic promises. The resurrection bears weight because it is rooted in the Word that God has used to reveal His will to us. Secondly, the resurrection is believable. It is validated because it has been verified by multiple eyewitnesses. And that's what we're going we're to really focus in on this morning. Why are eyewitnesses important to determining whether a bold claim is true or not? Why does that even matter? It matters because we can't only depend upon our own point of view. People get things wrong. You're going to look at the data available to you and you're going to see it for the first time, and sometimes you're going to make a wrong decision about things. You're going, to, you're going to read things incorrectly. And so it's important for us to hear from other perspectives, other points of view, from other people's testimonies, that the thing that we think we saw is actually something we saw. People lie, and people sin. 
And so the legal weight of an eyewitness account can be very important in the court of law to verify that somebody's not lying about the thing they claim to be true. This is, of course, contingent on the trustworthiness of the one who is testifying, right? You don't trust the word of somebody who has a reputation for lying again and again and again. Which is why it is a stronger position to have the strength of multiple witnesses. That way, you insulate yourself from somebody being particularly good at deception. Christians in our day and age are at a danger of missing the importance of this secondary verification. If for no other reason than we live in the midst of a society that has over-exaggerated the importance of one's own perspective far beyond its useful parameters. It is not so much the truth that many people in our society seek today. It is my truth that they are looking for. My truth about life. You've heard that phrase before. You've heard people refer to, well, this is my truth and I'm living it. My truth means that that person really only cares about or considers noteworthy their own perspective on life. They're not really looking for an objective truth, a truth that is real for everyone who comes and sees it. Rather, we live in a world where my truth is the only truth that matters. Eyewitnesses don't mean a whole lot in that kind of a world. All I need to know is that I believe it or I want it to be true. Everyone else can just believe whatever floats their boat, but I'm going to believe this. So be weary anytime you hear that phrase, my truth, because no one person here on earth owns the truth. Truth is God's. When objective truth is the aim, what we might call true truth, then the affirmation of multiple witnesses becomes very useful to us. True truth exists outside of the individual, and it is not the special possession of one person. It is there for anyone to see, for anyone who has the eyes to see it. That is not to say that truth is a matter of the democratic process either. Truth is not the story that is most popular at the time. We're not just going to ask, okay, who votes that this is the interpretation of our passage today? Then whichever hands go up the most for a certain interpretation, that one wins the day. That's not how things are, 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 are obtained. That's not how truth is obtained. But we must not ignore the fact that God has filled many individuals with His Holy Spirit that God has given many people eyes to see the truth. And so when we have many witnesses that are saying amen to the same things, we should consider the, the weight of that testimony. To Paul's contemporaries, truth claims benefited greatly from credible witnesses because the corroborated story of the many is more substantial than the whim of one individual. In the Old Testament, you couldn't bring a claim against someone unless you had the testimony of two or more witnesses. And so with that ethic in mind, with that, that legal framework, Paul is going to bring to us here today several witnesses that bear testimony to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we even see some of this in uh, the New Testament here. I was just with my uh, Tuesday night hermeneutics class talking about why do we need four Gospels to start the New Testament? A gospel is a genre of scripture whereby the life and ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and recorded historically. And you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. They are the historical narrative of Christ's life on earth and his ministry here. Why do we need four of them? And we spoke about the beauty of those four different gospels and how they approach the same story 
from different varied angles. And they give you a fuller picture of the wonderful, beautiful story of God's, uh, God's son, how he lived for us, how he fulfilled the law of Christ, or the law of God, how he suffered on our behalf, and how he triumphed over sin and death. And those four gospel testimonies give us a more well-rounded picture of who Christ was and what God accomplished through him. So let us each consider the witnesses this morning recorded by Paul. First of all, we read that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? Cephas is Simon Peter. He is one of the twelve. The word does not explicitly say here that Peter was the first to witness the resurrection, but the use of the word and then following Cephas indicates that Paul is addressing these witnesses chronologically. The importance of that approach will become clear in time when we start to see Paul and how he is the last person who received this physical proof that Jesus Christ had risen. Peter was not the first. Multiple Gospels indicate that, in fact, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Matthew 28 talks about uh, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, which one we don't know, who went to the tomb to see that Jesus had risen. All four of the Gospels speak about Mary Magdalene being there. Other Gospels speak about Mary, the mother of James, being present. Uh, a woman named Salome being there and, and another woman named Joanna. There might have been more. And in that day, the testimony of women was not considered as permissible in a court of law. So perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul goes directly to Peter as one of the first. Even the disciples fell into that bias when they were initially told by women that Jesus had risen. Luke 24, 11 says, But these words, after they proclaimed to the twelve or the eleven remaining disciples that, that the tomb was empty, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they, the apostles, did not believe them. So they didn't even believe the resurrection themselves at first. They needed to see some evidence with their own eyes. So Peter's testimony is listed in the primary position here. And Peter's testimony should carry much weight for a number of reasons. Peter was very close to Jesus. One of the first disciples called, and almost always in the thick of the disciples' activities, Peter was ever-present throughout all four of the Gospels. He was often the spokesman of the Twelve, such as when Jesus asked his followers, who do the people say that I am? And his followers gave several different accounts of rumors or thoughts that people had about who Jesus might be. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you, my 12 closest disciples, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who spoke up and said, you are Jesus, the son of the living God. And so Peter had heard firsthand Jesus' teachings. He had seen firsthand Jesus' miraculous power, and he had heard Jesus Christ say specifically that after his crucifixion, he would rise on the third day. Peter himself was also skeptical of that resurrection. Do you remember that Peter initially insisted that Jesus was off base to insist that his death was necessary for the atonement of sin? You can see that in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. So the testimony of one who would have himself needed very clear proof to believe might be more believable than the testimony of one who was personally looking forward to the resurrection and was biased towards believing it. Peter's denial of Christ in the most critical of moments made the resurrection quite a dilemma for him, in fact. We know that the apostle Peter 
who had said that he would in no way, shape, or form deny the Lord Jesus, even if he had to die, that he would stand for him. When things got real, he denied Jesus three times in the course of just a few hours. And so there was great shame in his heart as, as Jesus had predicted that he would do that. And so when Peter found out that Jesus had risen from the grave, there must have been mixed emotions in his heart. Of course, he was glad that his dear friend was not dead. He was glad that this prediction, which he could hardly believe had come true, had actually come to pass. But now after rising, Peter was going to have to face his dear friend whom he had betrayed and denied. Jesus spent considerable one-on-one time with Peter after he rose from the dead to assure his friend that he was indeed forgiven. You can read about that in the last chapters of the book of John. Not only did Peter see the risen Christ, he actually ate a physical meal with him. He spoke at length with Peter. He experienced personal forgiveness from Jesus. So Peter's testimony is not based on an incidental sighting. It is based on significant human interaction with the risen Lord. The resurrection was not just Peter's truth. The breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee was not self-contrived existential healing. It was not some weird mental experience that happened only in Peter's mind. No, Christ appeared to Peter bodily. And then in due time, Paul records that Jesus appeared to the twelve. Now that, that, don't let that phrase, the twelve, throw you off here. The twelve is a general term that was in common usage to identify the disciples of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus appeared to all the twelve. Remember Judas Iscariot? had committed suicide shortly after the crucifixion took place. Obviously, he's not there when Jesus reveals himself to them as having been risen. It doesn't even have to necessarily refer to all the 11 because one of the, the first appearances of Christ to his apostles, the apostle Thomas was not with the others, so there were only 10 there. And that's still referred to as a, an appearance to the 12. It means that Jesus showed himself to the general group of Jesus' closest students, the risen Christ showed himself to these disciples. So along with Peter, these men had also been made aware of Jesus' intent to rise. Like Peter, these men had also struggled to believe that the resurrection would actually happen. This was something very out of the box for the Hebrew mind. But having spent three years discipling these men, Jesus did show himself to them upon his resurrection. And he used those times of fellowship to impart to them the great commission. Matthew 28, 16-20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Perhaps a claim could be made that this particular fraternity of men had some vested interest in putting together a story that Jesus had indeed risen. Some some over the course of time, some liberal theologians and secular commentators have suggested as much. They've said, listen, these, these men, they wanted Jesus to be risen, so they got together in their upper room and they corroborated and made up this story. That, uh, that they had seen an empty tomb, that Jesus had appeared to them. Remember, if the resurrection was a fabrication, 
of the surviving 12 disciples meant to further their own influence in the early church and give them personal notoriety, then they sure went to great lengths to make themselves look like idiots in the process. If this is 12 guys saying, let's, let's put together a story to make the world believe that Jesus rose from the dead and then gave us power and then left us here with it, then they did not paint themselves in a very favorable light in telling this story. They were not expecting what they should have been expecting in faith. They were not willing to believe the testimony of the women when they heard that Jesus did indeed rise. They were caught going back to less important things like fishing, despite the critical nature of the gospel events and the urgent need for them to begin to spread the message of the resurrection of Christ. They were still confused about the kingdom of heaven, even to the moment the resurrected Jesus ascended into the, hev the heavens. Don't you remember the disciples said, are, are you now going to bring about your, your kingdom? So they were still expecting some physical manifestation of the kingdom. So again and again and again, these 12 disciples, the 11 remaining after Judas's suicide, these disciples look like buffoons in some regards. Why would they have made up a story that didn't cast them as the heroes of the story. Every other situation you see over history where people have fabricated a religion to benefit themselves, they look like the hero. But in Christianity, everybody who's around Christ can only look like a mere mortal compared to Christ. He is truly the focus and the hero of the testimony of these special disciples of Jesus. But perhaps to put to rest the notion that the resurrection was a hoax fabricated by the Twelve before it even gained any traction, Jesus also appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. Now this likely did not happen in Jerusalem, for there were only a little more than about 100 believers there at the time of Christ's resurrection. The bulk of Jesus' earthly ministry had happened north of Jerusalem in Galilee, and it is likely here that Jesus displayed the truth of his resurrection to so many believers. Don't forget in Matthew 26, verses 31 through 32, that Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. This is the night he's going to the cross. It says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, Jesus said, I will go before you to Galilee. So of this great body of witnesses, many were undoubtedly still alive and able to communicate with anyone who was still trying to decide whether the resurrection was real. This group of 500 people, likely in Galilee, saw the risen Christ, and they could say, we saw him with our own eyes. We spoke with Jesus. He is not in the grave. And their testimonies would carry weight. And then there is this phrase that Paul uses in verse 6, which is very significant. He says, some who have fallen asleep, of that 500 plus people, some of them had undoubtedly died by the time this is written, probably 20 or 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And I love that he uses that phrase. You might be mistaken in thinking that, oh, he's just saying they fell asleep as a way to soften the blow of death. But really it's more a reflection on his firm belief that not only has Christ risen from the dead, but all who trust in Christ will one day also raise bodily from the dead. He is the first of many to be resurrected. And so when he says that these brothers who had witnessed the risen Jesus had subsequently fallen asleep, he's 
alluding to the fact that they too will rise from the grave, that they will live again. Their perishing is not permanent. While some of these witnesses were no longer living on earth, the vast majority could still be interviewed. They could still be sought out and questioned about the veracity of Paul's claims. And so this was a great bolster to the believability of this wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. Fourthly, Jesus appeared to James. Now there are many James in the New Testament. There were two James just in the twelve disciples. James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. But those two James aren't the ones who are in view here. Uh, They've already been mentioned in the appearance to the twelve. This is a different James. This is very likely James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is the author of the New Testament book of James. Jesus' personal appearance to his brother is not recorded in any other scripture, although there is an apocryphal gospel named the Gospel of the Hebrews that's kind of like a knockoff of Matthew. It's almost a copy of it in many regards that mentions that Jesus did show himself to James, but that's not biblical scripture. But if James is the one who's in view here, it would certainly explain his shift from skeptic to faithful follower and yes, even to apostle of his brother Jesus Christ. John 7, 2-5 says, Now the Jews' uh, feast of booths was at hand, and so Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, I hope if you've got older brothers or sisters, you get the, uh, the tone that that was set in, right? If you're so special, Jesus, if you're this Messiah that you claim to be, then why don't you go over to Judea? Why don't you go out to where people can actually see what you're doing? Let your disciples see your works firsthand. It says, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. That's remarkable to me, that Jesus Christ grew up in a household surrounded by people who got to see him keep the law in and out to the T. And yet even these brothers who saw him live this life of righteousness and purity and love and truth, even they struggled to believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah that he claimed to be. And so at first, they were not disciples of their brother. They were not apostles. But James... Having witnessed the power of the resurrection, Jesus apparently showing himself to his brother after he rose from the grave, was not only inclined to change his mind and embrace the fact that Jesus was Messiah, it also prompted him to become an influential voice in the early church and a faithful leader in the particular congregation that was gathered in Jerusalem. Do you see how important the resurrection is to the gospel message? If there is no resurrection then people have no reason to believe in the claims that we can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when people begin to see that the resurrection is real and that the Savior we came to worship here today is not a Savior who's buried somewhere in Palestine, but He is risen and reigns at the right hand of the Father. When they see that that Lord is a living God, then the gospel message clicks and makes sense. Jesus appeared to James, and that changed his life forever. Fifthly, we see that Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. And this is a different appearance than to the twelve. 
This is in part what makes an apostle an apostle, actually. As a person reads through the New Testament record, it's easy to become confused about the difference between a disciple of Jesus and an apostle of Jesus. What separates those two things? Surely the twelve were qualified to be called by both names, and we see the scripture bear witness to that. But what is distinct about each title, and why do the twelve bear both of those titles? Well, a disciple is, is more a generic term than the word apostle is. A dis- disciple is one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So a disciple keeps their eyes on their, their, their Lord, their, their rabbi, and then wants to be just like them, mimics their life after them, and spends their life following after them, learning their ways and listening to their teachings and their wisdoms. Socrates was a disciple of Plato. If you just want to look at things from a secular perspective, philosophers understood what that word meant because they often did similar things. A Christian today can be rightly referred to as a disciple of Jesus because we are fixed on the things that he taught. We set aside the pursuit of otherworldly things so that we can be apprentice to the one from whom comes eternal life. So if you're a believer today, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, and it's right to refer to yourself that way. But the title apostle has come to carry a more specific meaning. An apostle generally is someone commissioned and sent out as a representative of a higher source to accomplish the work that higher source has commanded them to do. And so we see the 12 apostles, or the 12 disciples rather, referred to as apostles after the time when Jesus sent them out two by two to begin preaching the good news of the Messiah's arrival. This is spoken about at length in Matthew 10, in Luke 9, and in Mark 6. It's a title that Jesus gives specifically to the twelve. In Luke 6, 13, he says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. That shows us that there were more than twelve disciples. There were several people following Jesus at any given time. But the twelve disciples who represented the core of his instruction Uh, These were also titled apostles. In time, though, this term became more specialized. In the New Covenant era, an apostle played the special role of having been commissioned to bear personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These individuals were to make frequent defense of what they had seen because God knew that the resurrection would be such a crucial truth for the establishment of the early church. So an apostle is somebody who bears witness to the testimony or to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they have eyewitness testimony to that fact. Now, two things to note here. Jesus has to name a person his apostle. That is the force of the commissioning. An apostle is sent out by authoritative decree from the one who rules over him. And certainly the apostles did carry a weighty burden and authority during the time of the early church's formation. Uh, The apostle Peter refers to himself at the beginning of his letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ because others would recognize that an apostle is one sent by Christ who bore testimony to the resurrection of Christ. As special revolution, uh, revelation rather concluded, though, as God no longer appeared to people in bodily form, the ability to become an apostle ceased. 
Now, some today even will try and lay claim to what is often referred to as apostolic succession. Uh, namely, the popes of the Roman Catholic Church will say that they descend from Peter himself. But that office was specifically given as a gift to the early church in a time when the divinity of Jesus needed to be established beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And so there is no apostolic succession today. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ if we trust in him. Uh, but I am not an apostle because I stand in this pulpit. I might exercise gifts that God has given to me as a called elder of the church, but I am not rightfully an apostle of Jesus Christ. Exactly what appearance is Paul specifically referring to here when he says that he referred to the apostles? We're not entirely sure. It could be uh, one of the assembled upper room appearances, though that is typically focused on the twelve. It could be that he's referring to the shores of Galilee when he appeared not only to Peter but to other apostles who were there, though that appearance is usually narrowed in attention to Peter himself. I think the most likely event, if Paul is not referring to some other appearance not recorded in Scripture, is the physical appearance of Jesus on the mount, which is probably Mount Tabor, where he instructed them to assemble uh, directly before his ascension into heaven. It is there that Jesus delivers a final commission to the earliest seat of the church and orders his men to go out into the world to preach about his resurrection and power. He is to make more, or these disciples are to make more disciples. Note, they're not to make more apostles, they're to make more disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This last exhibition, having been given to all the apostles, could have included James aforementioned, along with the other apostles who are recorded in the book of Acts, such as Matthias, who was chosen to take Judas Iscariot's place, uh, or Barnabas, who is numbered as an apostle in Acts chapter 14, 14. But there's one last witness that we need to call to the stand this morning. Um, lastly, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. Paul's testimony is significant for a number of reasons. And in some regards, it is the testimony that carries the least weight. Paul himself says as much here. Look again at the very self-deprecating way that he describes himself in verses 8 through 9. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The term untimely born doesn't just mean someone who should have been born at a different time. Those of you who are Christmas babies, born right around that very busy holiday season, might have grown up thinking to yourself as being born untimely, right? You were born at a time of year when all the focus is on other things, and your friends, they had their birthdays in the summertime or at a time when there wasn't another big holiday, and so you got to really just focus on their birthdays, but your birthday just kind of gets swept up in the undeniably more important birth of Jesus, and that's not all bad, but, but, but if you were born around Christmas, you know what I'm talking about there. Maybe you thought of yourself as untimely born, but that's not what Paul is saying here. The term untimely born literally means miscarried or even aborted, one who is forcefully caused to be born too soon. Now, the reason Paul uses such rough language here is that he sees himself as a kind of shocking monstrosity. 
He had absolutely no business representing the Son of God. For he was commissioned as an apostle, but before he was commissioned, he had literally been preaching against the good news of the resurrection. Paul had dedicated his time and energy to snuffing out the very notion that Jesus had risen again. Paul had indeed been an opponent of the very doctrine that he now preaches to the Corinthians. Turn with me for just a moment to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Uh, These verses will be on the screen as well, but it is good to have them in front of us in our words. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 62. says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. This is right after the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 63, And they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Do you see the absolute rejection of the idea that there's in any way at all that Jesus might actually rise from the dead. They were convinced he was dead as a doornail. He was gone. He wasn't coming back. These chief priests and Pharisees, who were ironically, theologically, defenders of the idea of life after death, these chief priests and Pharisees, however, cannot imagine a risen Jesus. They can only fathom a group of his believers stealing the body away and making up an outrageous but empty claim that maybe he did rise after all. This is the same opinion that Paul had prescribed to. It is the same opinion that motivated him to fiercely pursue the early church, to cause them to suffer for what they were believing and teaching others so that others would not fall into the same way of thinking. Paul was so convinced he was right about this that he felt justified sending these followers of Jesus to prison or even to shoal to the grave by way of execution if they persistently taught what Paul believed to be a blasphemous lie. How wrong Paul must have felt when the resurrected Jesus appeared publicly to him on the Damascus Road. How utterly wrong and foolish he must have felt to have thought to himself for all that time that in his religious zeal that he had been doing a a, a righteous favor for the Lord in snuffing out this uprising of of, of strange disciples who were misled and self-deceived. Some of you here today have made mistakes of judgment and they've cost you a lot. You can think back on your past and you still probably feel a tinge of shame and guilt for them. Maybe you had an opportunity to buy a house back in 2008 or 2009. You thought about it, but it seemed like too much of an investment, and you thought to yourself, I can't afford that risk. $250,000 is a lot of money. And now you're looking at property in Idaho, of all places, going for twice as much and more. And so you were wrong. And perhaps if you're like me, if you're a man like me, taking care of your family, you think, 
what better position my family would be in if I had made that decision back then. Or maybe it's a different scenario. Maybe you were young and unmarried and pregnant and no angel came to visit you about that. Or maybe your girlfriend came to you and said, my period isn't happening. I don't know what to do. And maybe in fear, maybe in immaturity, simply in sin, you decided that you couldn't afford to start a family at that time with that person, and so you went down to the clinic instead. And you sit here today knowing that you were wrong, and you wish so badly that you could take that back, you would give anything to be able to take that back. And that's probably something similar to how Paul felt as he saw the face of Jesus Christ bodily before him. And he stood before Christ with the blood of believers on his own conscience before the resurrected Messiah that he didn't believe in and was asked by that same Messiah, why are you resisting me, Paul? Why are you kicking against the goads? Paul had blown it. He had not believed. The evidence was there And Paul was not a stupid man, but he looked at the gospel message and he said, that is a lie, that's foolishness, and he rejected it. Since it didn't match what he thought was important, not only did he reject it, he tried to eradicate it. He tried to snuff it out. And yet here was Jesus Christ in his risen glory looking right into Paul's face, calling him to be an apostle apostle. Tell the world, Paul, tell them what you see here today. Tell them that I am alive and that you are wrong. My people won't even believe you at first. They will think it's a trick, but tell everyone that I'm alive. Testify to this truth. So Paul describes himself here as the least of the apostles, as the last of them, Just as he thought of himself as the chief of sinners, here Paul acknowledges that of all people, he did not deserve to have this responsibility. He had done nothing to merit this kind of favor. So in some regards, Paul's testimony to the resurrection carried the least amount of weight. But in other regards, it carries the most. In choosing to grab hold of Paul, to commandeer his life and thrust him into service for the gospel message that Paul used to hate. Jesus has given us an undeniably powerful, living picture of the transformation that the gospel brings about, not just in Paul's life, but in all who believe. It doesn't matter who you are. You too were Pauline in your rejection of Jesus before the Lord God himself changed your mind. You didn't believe it. You didn't live like it was true until God regenerated you and made you new. And with sin of your own disqualifying you, sin of your own causing you great guilt and shame and pressure, the Spirit grabbed a hold of your heart and made you see that the only hope you have of being near to a perfect and pure God whom you've offended is to hope that Jesus Christ perfect and holy, has given his own spotless life as a ransom for yours. Paul's inclusion as a witness emphasizes the grace inherent in the gospel message itself. What a vivid picture of God's victorious grace in the life of a man who is destined to lose it all. 
What a vivid picture of someone on death row, destined to taste the wrath of the Almighty in an instant changed to such a complete degree that he would go from that point to being dedicated from then on to building the very thing he tried to destroy. And the magnitude of this change was not lost on Paul. He got it. He understood how unlikely he was to be a representative of Christ, washed clean and redeemed by God's own Son. And so he did not waste this redemption. He did not allow his redeemed life to be spent living aimlessly and without purpose. Rather, the grace that he had received prompted Paul to work harder than any other apostle that he knew, striving endlessly for the expansion of the church by the preaching of the gospel and the declaration of Christ's victory. He subjected himself to any number of dangers in his adventures, and you can read about them recorded in the book of Acts, how he was beaten, how he was shipwrecked on several occasions, imprisoned. He was denied the basics of life. He denied himself the luxury of his own personal freedom so that he might better preach the gospel. He set aside his right to salary, lest someone might misunderstand him as a liar, capitalizing on the hopes of those that Jesus had left behind. He worked tirelessly to show people what he had been shown by Christ. We need to be clear on this part. His response, his efforts cannot be misconstrued as work that puts him in a position of deserving something from God. It's not like Paul worked his way back into the favor by working tirelessly. He makes sure that we don't make that mistake of thinking that way by explaining here as he does in other places, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It was not something remarkable about Paul, but it was the remarkable grace of Paul working in and through this man that made him the tireless, dedicated apostle that he became. As a man saved by grace, serving his Savior was not payback. It was now simply his nature. He had been transformed to love holier things. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. And so as we conclude, it is fitting that we ask ourselves the question, is my life valid testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Am I able to testify the way that Paul did? And the answer to that is not exactly. We cannot testify to the physical validity of Christ's rising. We're not apostles, are we? Jesus didn't physically walk into our room and tell us that our life was about to radically change. But the gospel message did. We might not be able to testify to the physical validity of his rising, but we can testify to the efficacy of it. That if Jesus had not risen, we too would still be dead in our own sins. We would be slaves to the things that are detestable to God. We would be walking after the things of destruction rather than basking in the light of God's glory today. And so, yes, we are not apostles, but we have a message to share with the world. We have a testimony of how that same Jesus, risen from the dead, has caused us to break free from the bondage and slavery of sin. We are made new in Christ if we belong to him. And so show the world the changed heart that you have for Jesus. Don't hide that away. Let your neighbors and your coworkers understand that you are a new creation. Don't be afraid to show them how wretched you were before Christ. 
Don't act like you just raised up like this perfect little child of belief and faith and you never did a thing wrong, but be willing to show your friends, I was just as wretched. And even now, as a redeemed believer, I fail and stumble, and I every day need the grace of Christ to overcome what is natural in me, this sin nature that Adam gave to me as my forefather. Preach the truth of Jesus. And it should be the song of our heart. We sang it early, didn't we? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. My life is worth the living just because he lives. So we have looked at several specific witnesses to the resurrection, but your life is proof as well. You are the fallout of the the grace that has been poured out into these apostles, into this early church, and the product of that is the church we see before us today. Do not be afraid to testify of Christ's work in you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your wonderful transforming power. We know, Lord God, that we were destined for destruction if it wasn't for you intervening. And so we praise you, Lord, this morning that we do not have to be the same person we were before. And we thank you that even this morning, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, your Holy Spirit might even be working in the hearts of people who are right now condemned, but in just a few moments will not be. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would continue to save people, that you would use the preaching of your word, the proclamation of truth to challenge individuals who are not yet in you to ask the question, do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess that your mouth, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would put that good confession, that good word into the hearts of some new brothers and sisters today. Lord God, for those who are young in the faith who do not yet know the power of the resurrection, let us show them how important this doctrine is. Raise up your saints. Let your sons and daughters not remain unaware of how important this is. I praise you, God, for the heart of the Apostle Paul the pastoral heart of this man who cared about the Corinthians to such a degree that though many of them questioned his apostleship, that he was still diligently committed to writing this letter back to them and showing them how important the resurrection is to their well-being. Father God, let us not forget these things. Let us be a people who are not afraid to keep things simple and to go back to that truth on which our hope is founded. Father, you are alive. And because of that, we do not have to be dead in our sins. We are grateful, God. We rejoice today. We confess we don't deserve this. And we praise you, Lord God, that even though there was nothing we could do to have earned your favor, you have poured it out on us. Help us, God, to not take this for granted. We love you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.